Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Our service will be led this morning by our Minister Katrina, and as usual, everything we need to follow the service is on our printed order of service and on the screen. Please stay and have some tea or coffee at the end of the service. This evening at 7pm, our evening worship will be in Wellington Church, and that service will be led by Rebecca Gebauer. Please note this service will also include <coughs> communion. Grace would like to say thank you to everyone who made a donation towards Christmas presents for the young women who are being cared for by Elpis. Um, you gave the amazing sum of £285, which made a tremendous difference and helped to make Christmas very special for them. So thank you. Then just a wee reminder that the funeral of Robin Ray will be held tomorrow at 3.15 at Maryhill Crematorium and we are all welcome to attend. So that's Robin's funeral tomorrow in Maryhill Crematorium at 3.15 in the afternoon. And then we just had news this week um, of uh, the sad death of Tim Bulkley. Some of us who are sort of older, longer standing <coughs> members of the church will remember Tim and Barbara Bulkley who worshipped here with us while Tim was doing a PhD at Glasgow University. They then went off to be missionaries. They had hoped in India, but visas never came through. So they ended up working in Zaire as it was then for nine years. And they were actually airlifted out of Zaire when the troubles came. From there, they came back to us here at Hillhead for a couple of years in the early 90s, and then have spent the rest of their working lives in New Zealand. Tim actually died at the end of October last year, and somehow the news never filtered through. So please remember Barbara and their four grown-up children and grandchildren. Next Sunday at 11am, morning worship will be led by Katrina, and in the evening, there will be the annual service for Homelessness Sunday at the earlier than usual time of 6.30pm. And that service will be held in the Lodging House Mission, which is 35 East Campbell Street, just off the Gallagate. These are all our notices. Our call to worship this morning comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah and chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands. Pay attention, you people from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All the hymns we are going to sing this morning are either taken from the book of Luke or are inspired by hymns in the book of Luke. So we're being very, very scriptural this morning and we're going to start by singing a hymn that is a version of Mary's hymn, Tell Out My Soul, The Greatness of the Lord.
come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. Good morning, God. It's us again. You know, the Hillhead crowd, gathered together in a hotel to share together in worship and in fellowship. There are lots of things to thank you for so many that if we were to list them all, we'd be here all day. So rather than do that, we take a moment to think of everyday blessings for which we are thankful. A roof over our heads, warm clothes to wear, clean water to drink and in which to wash, and meals to look forward to. We thank you for the freedoms we never really think about. (coughs) That nobody is going to arrest us for our religious or political beliefs. And that within reason, we can go where we want to go and say what we want to say and be, at least most of the time, who it is we want to be. As we gather, we thank you for the Christian story that informs and shapes our lives. Grateful to those who recalled and wrote down the teaching and the work of Jesus. And to those who passed it on, one way or another, right up until now. Help us as we gather to listen carefully for your voice speaking to us. Perhaps in a song or a prayer, a verse of scripture in something in Sunday school or Bible class, or maybe in the sermon. Help us not just to hear, but to respond to what you say to us, allowing our hearts and minds to be gently shaped more and more into the likeness of Jesus. 
We know that you love us and welcome us. We know that you forgive us and restore us. We know that you challenge and change us so that we may be the body of Christ here where we are. And with all of this in mind, we join our voices in the words Jesus taught his followers, saying in our own language and preferred version, the words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
watch on a Saturday evening? Who watches The Voice? Okay, nobody. Um, who watches The Greatest Dancer? A uh, few people. Um, who watches The Masked Singer? Well, at least one or two other people do, apart from me. That's a, I kind of watch <coughs> The Greatest Dance and then switch over to The Masked Singer. So the premise behind The Masked Singer is there are people, famous people, who are completely disguised in incredible costumes. Um, I've forgotten the name of the footballer last night who was unmasked. Um, basically, they all sing, and at the end of the evening, it gets down to two, and one of them is going to be unmasked, and... Um, the panel of judges has to say who they think it is behind the mask. And, and it was the most incredible tree, wasn't it, last night that was unmasked as like a, like a green man face, but this tree with mushrooms and all sorts. And, and there's a chameleon and there's a fox and a unicorn and you really have to see it to get it. But I think this might be an interesting um, time this morning because if nobody much watches it, this could go horribly flat. So basically, these people sing their songs and there are clues given that are meant to help the judges and the people at home work out who they are. But they're awfully cryptic. Um, I was looking at, at the, the, um, the clues last night after the, the footballer was unmasked and they went, we had the footballer as a tree in a forest because they once played for Nottingham Forest. Oh, goodness, that's quite a tricky one. So I'm not going to go quite as hard as that. We may not do all of them because I'm, I've got nine and I don't think we have time to do nine. But let's start off. So slightly easier. I'm going to give you extracts from some songs in the Bible. I'll put the words on the screen. The first three are all women. And I'm going to give you clues to who these women are and see if you can work out or guess. Or you might even know um, when you see it because you might be really brilliant Bible scholars. Okay. Uh. Hear, O kings, listen, O princes, to God, yes, to God I'll sing. Make music to God, the God of Israel. God, when you left Seir, marched across the fields of Edom, earth quaked, yes. The skies poured rain, oh, the clouds made rivers. Mountains leapt before God, the Sinai God, before God, the God of Israel. Okay, so this was sung by a woman in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And she sang it as a duet with a man who shares his name with a former president of the United States of America. This woman, you probably would not want to go camping with some of her friends. Heard it over there, sorry, somebody? Deborah, yes. <laughs> so Deborah sang this with Barack. Her friend was Jael or Yael. And she had to take responsibility when others were not. So this is part of her, the song that she sang with Barack. Okay. I'm bursting with God news. I'm walking on air. I'm laughing at rivals. I'm dancing my salvation. Nothing and no one is holy like God. No rock mountain like our God. Don't dare talk pretentiously. Not a boast, word of boasting ever. For God knows what's going on. You can tell I've gone for a fairly modern translation here. Didn't want to make it too easy. Some people, at history first clue, some people think that Mary used my song as a basis for her own song. <coughs> my son was the one who anointed the first kings of Israel. 
and I was very old when my son was born. Hannah. It's Hannah, yep. And I was just going to do the extra clue that, that I know that, that Sheila told me that Miss Allen had in one of her clues that she made an increasingly sized big robe every year. Yep, so that's the song of Hannah. One more from a woman. Very short one, this one, in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Sing to God, what a victory! He pitched horse and rider into the sea. <coughs> I sang this song with, some, with many of my friends on the seashore. I probably could have been in the Salvation Army because I liked playing the tambourine. Miriam. Miriam, yeah. Well done. So those are three from women. Do a bit, a bit of like an interval now with the adverts. And now we're going to move on to three men from the Hebrew Bible. My teaching, let it fall like a gentle rain. <coughs> My words arrive like morning dew, like a sprinkling rain on new grass, like spring showers on the garden. For it's God's name I'm preaching. Respond to the greatness of our God, the rock. His works are perfect, and the ways he works is fair and just. A God you can depend upon, no exceptions, a straight arrow God. So I'm not known as a singer. In fact, I probably had a stutter or a stammer. Sorry? No, not Aaron, no. Good guess, though. I famously smashed some stone tablets. Moses. Moses. Moses, yes, well done. Okay, another one from another he man in the Hebrew Bible. I love you, God. You make me strong. God is bedrock under my feet, the castle in which I live, my rescuing knight. My God, the high crag where I run for dear life, hiding behind the boulders, safe in the granite hideout. I made lots of foolish choices during my life. I was quite a good musician. <coughs> David, yeah, well done. Okay, another short one from the Old Testament, from a man. Give thanks to God, his love never quits. The sons of Korah, the other writers of the Psalms. Um, they may have quoted it, but that's not the, the one that I've got. So, yeah, it could have been the sons of Korah, but that's not who I've got. He was, the one I've got is one of the kings of Judah. I tried to bring my wayward people back to God. People sometimes put the word jumping before my name, and nobody knows why. Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, yeah, jumping. No, I, I looked it up, I searched for ages trying to find why jumping Jehoshaphat. Nobody knows. Okay, I think we've got time to do the last round. The last round is a little bit different because these are not people. These ones were all, are all sung um, by people whose names we don't know. And I'll see if you can get me to the book of the Bible in which we find these. Okay, so the first one. I'm not going to read all of it because it's quite long. A right time for birth and another for death. A right time to plant, another to reap. A right time to kill and, and another to heal. And so on. It's Ecclesiastes. Well done. Yep, so... We don't know who wrote Ecclesiastes, um, the Eeyore of the Bible, uh, sometimes referred to as the teacher, but um, lots of songs in that book. Okay, this is definitely a very modern translation. Oh yes, the blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, the honour and power and strength to our God forever and ever and ever. Oh yes. Sorry. 
It is indeed. Well done, Addy. That's Revelation. That's the great multitude. That's what the great multitude... Apparently that's the only hymn in their hymn book. I mean, it's going to be pretty boring if that's all we get to sing up there, but hey-ho. One last one. So, in honour of the name of Jesus, all beings in heaven and on earth and in the world below will fall on their knees and all will openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is Philippians, well done. Excellent. So as you can see, all through the Bible, there are lots and lots of songs. Songs on happy times, songs on sad times, songs that we still sing or adapt, songs that we wouldn't want to touch with a barge pole, and everything in between. But it's all sorts of wonderful songs to, to enjoy and to sing and to reflect upon. So we're going back to singing our way through Luke. And we're going to sing part of Simeon's. Is Simeon? I always get confused between Simeon and Zachariah. Thank you, it's Zachariah. I always get these two mixed up. So Zachariah's song. Thank you, Paul.
reading first from Luke, parts of chapters 1 and 4. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. (coughs) Jesus began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled out the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then reading from Acts chapters 1, 4 and 6 parts of. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, For as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained about the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait at tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, 
full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, we landed on a metaphorical desert island where the only gospel we had was that of Matthew. And we noted among the many themes of those were themes of completion or fulfillment, especially in relation to the law of Moses, and also extension and inclusion as it begins and ends with explicit mention of people who are outside Judaism being part of God's story. So very definite Um, sense of Matthew having a purpose. Last week, the gospel we had was the oldest and the shortest. There was no birth story and there were no post-resurrection appearances. We met a Jesus who told people not to say anything to anybody about who he was, who taught his followers in private and who used parables to disguise his message. We also met the women commanded to tell of his rising who ran away and said nothing to anybody. We thought a little bit about why Jesus might have wanted to hide his identity and why it might be that we, like the women, can be afraid to share the story of the Christ that we have met. Today's Desert Island book is different different again, and it comes in two volumes, as we're going to discover. It's the longest continuous account of the story in which we find ourselves. I don't know about you, 
But I've always accepted pretty much without thinking about it the order in which the books appear in the Bible. Even once I'd learned about some of the work that went into defining and ordering the canon of scripture and the questions that they asked about the, the ordering and the shuffling that occurred, I've kind of just accepted that where you are makes sense. It's purposeful, it's meaningful. But is it? Because we have four gospels in a carefully chosen order, and only then, after all four, do we have the one known as the Acts of the Apostles, or more typically nowadays, just as Acts, we may overlook or be unaware of the simple and important fact that Luke and Acts are believed to be written by the same person. Scholars do an awful lot of work deciding whether books are written by who we think they're written by, and they're convinced that Luke and Acts are written by the same person. And increasingly over time, are leaning towards the view that rather than a gospel and its sequel, we have one book in two volumes. So rather than talking about the book of Luke and the book of Acts, there is a growing tendency to refer to Luke Acts hyphenated. So volume one gives us a carefully researched account of the story of Jesus, and volume two gives us an equally careful account of how that story begins to shape people's lives and spread out into the wider world. I've probably said this before because I've got a terrible memory. I can't remember anything these days. But I do remember when I was about 12, well, I was 12. I remember precisely that I was 12 at the time. I came home from school one day, and we'd been looking at the book of Acts in RE, or part of the book of Acts in RE. And I said to my mum, well, what comes next? After Acts, what next? Once the Bible was finished, who recorded what happened next? My poor mum was very flummoxed. And she had to admit, which was a big thing for my mum, that she didn't know. Uh, my mum was quite good at making things up if she didn't know, but on this occasion, she just said, I don't know. Uh, she didn't say, go and ask your teacher. Maybe she feared that my teacher wouldn't have a clue either. I don't know. Of course, the story just carries on through all time, right up to the present day. And we find ourselves part of that story. Strictly speaking, the book of Acts is an unfinished book. For sure, it ends with Paul having reached Rome. Perhaps symbolically the end of the earth, where he's under house arrest. But it's not a neat finish. It's not a tidy ending. We're left hanging. There's, like all the best stories, you're left wondering, well, what happens next? What happens next? And it carries on and on through time. Of course, like any of the Gospels, we can make a whole series of sermons from the things that arise in Luke Acts. Many of us will be very familiar with his focus on Jesus healing people who were sick, the idea that Luke was a physician or a doctor. He talks a lot about Jesus spending time with those on the margins of society, those who are perceived as sinners, usually rendered in quotes in modern translations. For his portrayal of women, which is, is positive, and his concern for people who are poor. I'm kind of taking all of that as read, 
for our exploration today. And I'm going to lean more towards the second volume of the story and how the gospel began to shape the lives of those who heard and responded to it. And in particular, I want to focus on the opening of the second volume, which provides important clues to what Theophilus, whoever he was, nobody knows, although scholars seem to think he was a real person, and other readers and hearers are being taught here. We have a unique account of a conversation between Jesus and his closest followers just before the ascension. And we're told they ask, essentially, well, is this it then? Is this the moment we've been waiting for? Is this the moment, the time, when the messianic age is fulfilled and Israel is restored? And Jesus basically says, I can't tell you. God only knows that. Well, that's not what they wanted. They wanted to know, is, is this it? Is this everything we've been waiting for for so long? And they're told, you're not supposed to be waiting and wondering and worrying about this. I want you to carry on the story. I want you to be my witnesses. First of all, in Jerusalem, where you are, and then into Judea, and then into Samaria, and then on to the ends of the earth. And whilst the phrase, the ends of the earth, is usually understood geographically, and I think that's probably right, it's not the only way we can understand it. And it's not without its problems. If we're thinking geographically, what is the end of the earth? I mean, the geography of the known world then was very different from what it is now. Did it mean the Roman Empire plus the bits of Asia and the bits of Africa that people had discovered and they'd learned about? Or did it mean, as we now tend to read it, the whole of the Earth? So that includes Australia and New Zealand and America and Canada, which nobody had heard of in first century Israel. Might it mean that if scientists ever discover life elsewhere, actually it means the furthest reaches of the universe? Whatever it means, there is a sense that this witness is to spread out to the furthest extremes. Probably that does mean the universe, if we take it um, kind of theoretically, or um, it's an idea rather than a geography. Because I was really curious, though, I wanted to see what the Greek word that was used here um, I'm not very good at Greek, but I have a nice interlinear New Testament. And it told me the word here was a derivative of the word eschatos, from which we get our word eschaton and eschatology. So the words we sometimes use to refer to so-called end times or the end of time, the time when God makes all things new. So could it be not just a ge geographical reference, but a chronological reference. You are to be my witnesses in all places and all times until the very end of time when God makes all things new. I want to suggest, based on nothing other than my impression from reading it, that it does. And therefore, we are very much a part of that ongoing story in this place, and this time. 
And if that's the case, it seems good to remind ourselves a little bit how, a little bit, sorry, very briefly, how the Jesus of Luke Acts sets out his manifesto at the start of his ministry, and then what it looks like in the community of believers as they begin to live out that life of witnessing to hit the good news. In this gospel, the first place we meet Jesus after his time of preparation and temptation in the desert is a synagogue where he is invited to read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Hugely familiar words that we've undoubtedly heard many, many times, just as the people there would have found them hugely familiar. But perhaps because of that familiarity, just like them, we don't always hear what it says. God's spirit is upon me, and God has anointed me. In other words, God has chosen me and equipped me and set me aside for this purpose. So what is the purpose? To preach good news to those in poverty. To announce freedom to those held captive to release those who are oppressed, to proclaim that the time of God's favour is now. And we begin to see in the Gospel, in, in volume one of this book, how that works out. Except it doesn't quite go as the disciples expect, because Jesus falls foul of the authorities. He's arrested, he's tried, and he's executed. It all seems to have come tumbling down. It's a depressing end to the story. But actually it isn't. Jesus reappears, scarred but alive. He still has holes in his hands and his feet and presumably his side. He walks along roads. He eats food. He has conversations with people. And they begin to think, well... Well, maybe now it's it then. This is the eschaton. This is the fulfillment. This is the moment we've been waited for. But no. Jesus gathers his followers and says to them very clearly, stay here and you too will receive the Holy Spirit. And once you have been anointed by God in this way, you will be fully equipped to be my witnesses here, there, and everywhere, now and always. It's down to you to speak and be good news, to free those who are trapped in poverty, to release those who are ensnared by unjust systems and cruel regimes, to proclaim the time of God's favour is now and not yet. And I don't know if that blows your mind, but it certainly blows mine. Not because it's something I've never heard before. I've heard it hundreds of times. I've preached it many a time. But that reminder that God has entrusted the work of the kingdom to people like us. So what might that look like? What did it look like in the early church? And, and 
And what might it look like in our time? Twice in the second volume of what Luke has recorded for us, very early on, we're granted a glimpse of the communal life of the believers. And it's actually an incredibly radical outworking of the good news. An incarnation of the message with which they are entrusted. It's kind of an enacted witness, if you like. They model what it is that is the good news. They don't just meet on a Sunday or some other day to worship. They are totally committed to each other. Those who have wealth contribute generously. Those who own property sell it and donate the proceeds. And we can probably all recall the horror story about one couple who lied about this. And those donations of money, all that money that's held in common, is then used to support those who are in need, both within their own community and also to help fund the work of new communities that are starting to emerge in other places. When the people meet together, they worship, of course, and they pray, of course, but they also eat together. They listen to each other and they care for each other. They are, as best as they can be, a microcosm of the hope to which they aspire. As a, another minister friend of mine puts it, a free sample of heaven. This community is really attractive. It becomes the talk of the town, and more and more people want to get involved with it. There are people of Jewish Hebraic backgrounds and people of Greek Hebraic, uh, Greek Jewish backgrounds. And they all want to learn more about Jesus. They all want to be witnesses in their lives to this good news. But it gets more and more complicated and it gets messy and people start to grumble. They've established a system to support those who are widows. A daily distribution of food. Remember there was no um, social anything in those days. If you were a widow, you were basically reliant on your family or nobody. So they give out food to the, witness, to the widows according to their need, except it's not quite working. The Hebraic widows are getting their share, but the Greek widows aren't. And so a complaint comes to the leaders, to the Twelve. And we can read their response in different ways, but I would like to suggest it's not that we are superior. It's not that we are above this. They're not saying, oh, we're too grand and important to wait on tables. What they're saying is, we've been set aside for this job, and, which is the kind of preaching apostolic job, and if we're doing the care for the widow's job, we can't do our preaching job properly, and we can't do everything. I think that's the key message here. None of us can do everything. So what are they going to do about it? I wrote down, <laughs> what they do is incredibly Baptist. And then I wrote down, well, actually, maybe what Baptists do is incredibly Lucan. You see, they don't choose the people to do the task. They entrust the choice to the community. They say, OK, you choose seven people, men in this case, but let's say people because we're kind of many centuries later, and we'll give them the work. So it's not a top-down management structure. It's a grassroots, I mean, upwards one. 
Just as Jesus trusted his followers, so now they must trust the community. And having chosen seven, they commission them. They pray for them. They set them apart to do that work. And as the story carries on through the second volume of Luke Acts, more and more people are drawn into the story. One would think perhaps of Saul of Tarsus, renamed Paul. Or Barnabas, who was known for his work as an encourager. Or John Mark, the fallible missionary who ran away home and then had a second chance. Because rather than just one community now, there's a whole network of them. And they're autonomous. And they're each trying to work out what it means for them to be witnesses in their part of the world. And as we read on through the story, we discover there are debates and a few fallouts and a few gatherings and big meetings over all sorts of matters, practical, missional and theological. And from time to time, there are special collections for other congregations, either new ones or ones who are struggling financially in faraway places. Time passes and we move beyond the book. The message spreads further and further and the informal, intentional communities around the Mediterranean morph into established organisations. Principles get replaced by rules. Structures determine practice. Schisms arise over matters of theology as people of faith disagree profoundly on anything from the status of scripture to who can be baptised, who can marry whom, and what happens when we die. Yet, mysteriously and wonderfully, for all the faults and failings of the church, the story still spreads. And people are still attracted by the idea of Jesus and this ideal of a diverse community of equally valued people. If we look back through time and we look around in our own time, there have always been and there still are intentional communities and organisations who seek to live a life as close as they can to what they discover in Acts. We might, for example, think of their own community or the Northumbria community or even the monastic tradition with its vows of poverty, chastity and obedience. We may be aware of the Eden Project, not the place in Cornwall, a missionary organisation, or Urban Expression, each of which in some measure achieve and in some measure fail to achieve their goal. But the values they adopt are, are very much those seen in Luke Acts. Mutual accountability, sharing of financial resources, community meals, shared decision-making, worship, prayer. They are, if you like, in their contexts and in their own unique ways, lived examples of the good news. They are witnesses to the story of Jesus, to the ends of the earth. So what about us? What about our little community? I'm not going to answer that. I'm just going to leave some more thoughts because I'm a bit mean like that. As we leave this third desert island, what does God have to say to us about our life together and to part? 
as witnesses to Jesus in this place and this time, and in other places and other times. And here's the tough bit, I guess, the way it is for me. What does God say to us about our resources, about our relationships, about our responsibilities? What is it that we take with us that might help us to walk a little more closely to Jesus or to be more effective witnesses simply by who, what and how we are? And so we sing a hymn which is inspired by the words of Jesus, quoting a poem or a song by Isaiah.
Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the end of the age. In our prayers this morning, we continue to reflect on what it means to witness to Jesus today and on what might be good news for the people that we've been asked to pray for specifically this morning. During our prayers, we'll use an ancient response. When I say, Lord, in your mercy, you're invited to respond, hear our prayer. So let us pray. <coughs> Loving God, we give thanks that we are a member of a family of churches. And this morning, the Baptist Union of Scotland asked us to pray for Alva Baptist Church working in one of the most economically deprived areas of Scotland, where people suffer not just from physical poverty, but from all the other kinds of deprivation which flow from it. We pray that you will help the church there to work out what it means to witness to you among people whose lives are hard, where work is scarce, and hope is in short supply. Help them to understand what good <coughs> news would look like to the people among whom you have placed them. Lord, in your mercy, hear, hear our prayers. Prayer. <coughs> We're asked to pray too for Aaron Baptist Church and Ardbeg Baptist Church on the Isle of Butte. We know that island life has its own special challenges, that there are unique pressures associated with being cut off from the mainland that can stifle individuality and suppress creativity. We pray that the churches on Arran and Butte will work out how to bear witness to you by modelling for their communities a way of living together that values each person equally and allows each person to flourish in the way that you intended. And today specifically, we ask your blessing on Nicola Sutherland from Ardbeg Baptist, who will begin a student placement here at Hillhead in the next few weeks. Show us how to help her grow and flourish during her time with us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And finally, the Baptist Union asks us to remember Graham Bell, the chaplain of Her Majesty's Prison, Glenocho, as he walks with and supports prisoners during some of the darkest times of their lives. Help him to work out what it means to bear witness to the one who came to free the captives among men who are imprisoned both literally and by deeply ingrained and self-destructive patterns of behaviour. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. BMS World Mission asks us to remember this morning 
those who work with the most marginalised people in our world. Not the poor, but those who have absolutely nothing. No land, no possessions, no security. Not because they lack ability, but because of the greed of others. Specifically, we remember today those who work in the fragile nation of Afghanistan, teaching safe birthing practices to women in rural communities. We remember the BMS team in Thailand who work with women and children who have been trafficked. And we remember Susanna Barrel in Mozambique who runs a sewing project for vulnerable women so that they will have a way to support themselves and their families in the future. Encourage and support all these people as they seek to free the oppressed in your name and help each member of those teams to work out what it means to bear witness to your transforming love among people who have known only neglect or abuse. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And finally, we pray for ourselves. What would good news look like for us as a church, as families, as individuals. On the Hillhead prayer calendar, today we are asked to pray for Katrina and Ben. We thank you for Katrina's faithfulness since childhood and for Ben's loving support for her in all she does. We ask you to bless them and to help them to be a blessing to their families and to all that they meet. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Liberating God, help us to be authentic witnesses to your love in a world where so often people feel themselves to be unloved. Show us how to bring good news and how to be good news for all the world. Amen. Send me Jesus, send me Jesus, send me.
merciful and generous God, we have spoken and we have prayed about being good news. And so as we offer these gifts of money, we dedicate them and ourselves just to do that, to be, to speak and to share good news here and in all places into the future. Amen. So this really is our last hymn from Luke, and this one is Simeon's. The Nook Dimitus, let your servant depart in peace. God of love uphold us, the Christ of salvation accompany us, and the spirit of freedom inspire us, as we seek to be witnesses in Hillhead, in Glasgow, in Scotland, <coughs> and to the ends of the earth, even the ends of the universe, now and until the end of time. Mm-hmm.